Good, good. What's yeah, going thanks on? Thanks for coming. Thanks for thanks for taking time out of your day to come sit with us. Yeah, no, no, no problem. I've been in Zoom meetings literally all day today, so it's okay. <laughs> to your prime dinner already. Yeah, exactly. I got everything set up. Nice. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming. I saw that you were on your Instagram DMs and you were always sending us messages. And then when you saw about the podcast that you reached out and I saw your resume, I was like, oh. I mean, you know, I, um, I actually have done these before on Instagram live for IEA about a year or two ago. I've done a couple of them. I know Chelsea Spencer, uh, she got us, got me involved with this. So I just wanted to continue to help you guys and even talk about some projects that we're working on uh, in Grenada with SGU and the Ministry of Health. So we'll definitely talk about that. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So um, just like a quick intro of what this is. So this is a new platform that Quinn and I, our current IA president, are starting just to kind of close or create a bridge for students who are aspiring to go into their field of choice and try to bring back like IA alumni or SGU alumni who reached those uh, residencies and just give them an opportunity to just kind of collaborate and talk, you know, make it intimate and conversational and just ex explain more of their journey to see how they got there. So we have a, we have a member of ours for IA who's interested in IM. Yeah, sure. Um, do you guys want to introduce yourselves beside like Quinn? Let me hear your story too. And then I'll let you guys know about me. Yeah, of course. You actually took the words right out of my mouth. So I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, give you a quick intro of who I am. My name is Quinn. I'm the current IA president. I'm a term five medical student. And uh, I guess my little why I'm here, how I got here is that my family is Grenadian. Um, I never really, yeah, it was really cool because I never really thought about you know, my medical school journey. And then when COVID happened, I took a step back and really thought about the person I was and the person who I want to be. And that transformed into, well, why not just mix my medical education with education on my culture and who I am. So it was the best of both worlds. I thought it was an amazing experience. And uh, in doing that, it just gave me the passion to give this kind of career path my all. And, you know, one step at a time, it, it led me to here being with IEA and being the president. And I'm just so happy to have a great cohort, a great staff that allows me to make this platform where we can bring in our alumni and some students that, you know, we can show them that where they are now, and where they can end up, like where you are, um, is possible. And I think that's a very special thing to do. So glad to be here. And uh, yeah, that's who I am. Congrats. That's great. Cool. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm Kevin, um, term four at SGU, uh, also part of the e-board at IAA. Uh, my journey is a little bit unorthodox. Uh, I graduated high school, didn't go straight into college right away. I became a personal trainer. I thought that was my calling. I needed to help my mom financially in the house. And then I uh, had a client who had a heart attack on the gym floor. And that's where I realized that, you know, my knowledge was limited and I could actually hurt someone if this ever happened again. So I didn't know what I was doing. And I just went down this path of like, okay, I need to, I need to level up. I need to get better at helping people. And I just kind of gravitated towards medicine and I wanted an opportunity, but my track record wasn't as great as your typical U.S. student where I, you know, didn't go to college right away. And I had a lot of like proving to do to you know admin and stuff. So SU gave me an opportunity and I came in and said, okay, I'm gonna just put my head down. I'm gonna work. I know what my goals are. I know what I gotta do. I know I gotta prove a lot of people wrong. So we're just gonna we're just gonna work and just and the process I've matured a lot and you know I think my story is a little 
inspirational in terms of what I've been through. So I wanted to share that and, you know, help people as well grow. And I became part of IA just to really, you know, when people are down and now and they think they can't do it, just to give them a little bit of inspiration and motivation. You know, we're all here to do it. We're all here to help people and let's just grow together. That's, that's fantastic. Um, I should introduce myself now. Hi, I'm Nagam. Um, how I ended up here? Well, SGU was just, I had some friends that had come here, some family members, um, and they recommended SGU, but I come from an Arab American community where I find that a lot of people have problems with health literacy and don't have accessibility to that, you know, just understanding their bodies. So part of the reason why I wanted to go into medicine and go into healthcare is really to help my community. And uh, I was really interested to hear from you because I know that you're an internal, me internal medicine resident at um, Lenox. And I've done some research about that. And I was really interested in learning more about, about the residency position. So I'm very excited to hear what you have to say today. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you guys all have amazing stories and uh, it, it's, it sounds appropriate for IEA. And that's what I'm really proud about. So uh, I'm actually the current chief medical resident at Lenox Hill. So I'm basically one of three chiefs that are supervisors of the entire residency program. We have about 96 residents uh, at our hospital of internal medicine alone. So it's, it's quite a big uh, cohort of people that we manage. Um, we actually do have one or two SGU alumni per residency year class. So PGY one, two, three, PGY means postgraduate. And uh, yeah, that I chose primarily to be a chief because I love to teach and IEA actually uh, really instilled that in me because I know we had our duty hours to give back and to, uh, you know, in terms of tutoring. So my story, I mean, it kind of sounds similar to all you guys. I was raised in North New Jersey. I come from an Arab American family too, as well from the Middle East. My dad did his residency in New Jersey for uh, internal medicine and he became an emergency medicine doctor. Um, and, you know, ever since then, I've always loved just working with my hands in the sense of just procedures. And, uh, you know, in North New Jersey, I met an interventional cardiologist while I was at TD Bank working as a customer service chef in college. And he turned out to be my mentor for 10 years, but I had difficulty getting into medical school uh, and I didn't want to, as Kevin was saying, you know, end that kind of journey. I wanted to continue and fight and, and do what I could. And SGU gave me that platform. Uh, and I think really what, what my biggest takeaways in terms of, you know, what you the ability to develop a good uh, work ethic and a, and a good, good uh, systematic approach in the sense of how you uh, study how you uh, do your clinical rotations. I think that's all important. And I think honestly, Grenada and SGU was kind of the shot in, in the arm I needed, so to speak, to kind of get my my game up, my work ethic up. I think I was not as, I thought I was good, but I really was not good in comparison to any medical student, whether it was allopathy in the United States or internationally across the world. I mean, it's New York. You really have to go above and beyond your comfort zone, and you really have to push yourselves to really do well, not only at SGU, because obviously they've designed the curriculum to be that way on purpose, but also for step one and step two. So ever since my second year, actually, no, end of my second year, uh, after taking step one, um, I've always wanted to tutor back in the United States. So I worked for, I used to, so I've tutored uh, the past four or five years now, tutoring for close to almost 4,000 hours of tutoring uh, via Zoom. Uh, it's kind of like an online meta format. And I think the advice uh, or things I've noticed that I can give as advice to you guys for your exams, and then I'll talk about clinical rotations and the whole journey to getting to residency. But 
for your exams, I think you need to be careful in using too many resources. I think that's one of the biggest issues that plagues a lot of Caribbean medical students is using too many resources. So for step exams, you know, uh, I really, you know, especially for step one, I actually utilize the lecture notes. So from our, uh, our curriculum, and a lot of people would say we were, oh, you know, I'm crazy for doing that. But I actually use it as a backbone, because, you know, in order to do well on your step exams, and I know US assembly step one is pass fail, but still, it's a good precedence to set from the first exam. But you need more detail than first aid. Uh, first aid is going to give you enough, uh, maybe to barely pass, but then also, going forward in the future for step two and all these other exams, it's not going to be enough. You're, you're going to really have to use a lot more material. But the problem is a lot of people use multiple books. They try to extrapolate information from multiple sources. And I think that's not good. So my advice is kind of streamline it. You want to use one question bank. Obviously, UWorld is the best. I know that they uh, really tell you guys to start in term five. And you know, my recommendation when I was studying for step one was I, by the time term Term five ended, I had one pass of UWorld done. Uh, and then I focused from, uh, let's see, what it was like probably the first week of May until, I don't know, it was probably July, mid July, I took the exam, uh, was doing UWorld again and going through all the material again. So term five was a huge opportunity to not only go through the past, you know, what, year and a half of, uh, you know, basic sciences, but was also to do UWorld at the same time. And it really teaches you how to be time efficient. Because during your dedicated study time from May to June, you're really going to have to manage your time well and also uh, be careful not to burn yourself out. You know, I, you know, you have to also give yourself some time to be well. Uh, I know I'm a little bit of a slacker, especially when I come back home. So I stayed on the island on purpose from May to end of June uh, because it was just a great way to isolate myself, uh, you know, because I really needed to maintain that high level of work ethic that SGU instilled into me. Um, and then, you know, once you once you kind of get past step one, you know, uh, I think it's kind of a little bit better of a, of a trail in the sense of smoother sailing. Unfortunately, you know, I've spoken to my program director about this. We're interviewing resident, I mean, uh, applicants right now for residency. This is the interview season right now. It goes from basically end of September till January. big issue, in my opinion, and I've discussed that with my program director, is that, you know, how do you now that uh, US Assembly Step 1's passed fail, how do you differentiate uh, a Caribbean medical student? So unfortunately, the, the buck will stop at Step 2 CK. So Step 2 CK is going to be at the end of your third year of clinical rotations. Usually it's taking in at, you know, July to August of your end of your third year of your uh, basic core rotations, which is, you know, medicine, surgery, all of those big ones. Um, and it's still a numerical grade. And I applicants, especially schools, including SGU, uh, we use step two now as a good surrogate. It used to be step one. So for the audience, especially those who are listening or are going to listen to this, the reason why most residency programs use step one as a kind of filter, so to speak, is that step one has been statistically uh, significant in terms of correlation with passing your medicine boards at the end of your three years of residency. So it's been shown to have a good correlation. So there, has, there isn't any data necessarily about step two, but step two, unfortunately, is just the next exam that they can use as a numerical score to filter, okay? We used to have something called step two clinical skills, which was an in-person, you know, type of, like you guys do in your OSCEs, you had a, a patient kind of simulation that occurred with a, you know, a hired actor. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore, so that luckily saves you guys money, and I think it was pretty much unnecessary, unfortunately, for, um, for pretty much every medical student. Now, 
what you guys can do when you get into your clinical rotations for your third and fourth year uh, uh, help you differentiate yourselves uh, compared to the allopathic uh, graduates is the clinical rotation. So I did, I was the last or second to last year that did uh, a clinical rotation at Hacktech. It was 25 minutes away from my mom's house. It was perfect. It saved me a ton of money. Um, but you really have to impress those who are your attendings. And also, I think what's really important, and I've noticed this personally, and I can say this as an SU graduate, is that there are varying levels of professionalism with respect to not only Caribbean medical students, but U.S. allopathic medical students, different levels of maturity. I come from a banking background, like I told you guys, and, you know, the, really the best way to differentiate SU to maintain our not only maintain our image, but to get good letters of recommendation and also maybe even interview spots at where you rotate, you know, for residency is to be better, more mature, more professional than your colleague. SGU, I mean, depending on the varying levels of professionalism. Uh, and that's why SGU actually is really emphasizing this with you guys in terms of professionalism showing up on time, because these are actually the basic things that medical students in our hospital, those are the basic things and residents too. Those, those are the basic things that we analyze people on, because if you can't do that, how am I going to expect you to rely on you to really be there to, to take care of complex situations, right? If you can't even show up to work on time, if you can't, you know, respond to your phone in terms of text messages and calls, these are all very basic things you'd think they're trivial, but that people do mess them up all the time. So when you're in your third year rotations, Always be that person that works the hardest. Always be that person that, you know, is inquisitive. I think, you know, a lot of times, you're, you know, med students, hold on one second. Let's see. Yeah, there we go. A lot of med students will, you know, if they're not interested in their, in whatever rotation, let's just say you want to go into internal medicine, you're on a psychiatry rotation and you just, you're very disinterested. It shows, it will show. I mean, residents will pick up on it and attendings will pick up on it. And I think that's the biggest issue is always, always be inquisitive, always show interest in whatever you're doing in terms of rotation and you never know what's going to help you i mean how many times i can use parkinsonism and i never would have thought of that really in medicine i thought that that wasn't going to be the main thing but that's actually very common in internal medicine you're supposed to really know a huge variety of pathologies and a good foundation so your your clinical rotations will actually save you um and asking residents you know scenarios tell me how i go through this situation that you're interested in, you really care about getting better, but it's going to remember your name, to remember your name. And when the time comes to ask for him, they're going to remember that stuff. The other thing I want to say before you guys, if you have any other questions uh, before I end my spiel is that regarding letters of recommendation during your clinical uh, rotations in your third year, you're really you're going to need to get letters during your third year because you're applying it to that summer of your fourth year, that beginning of your fourth year. So whenever you have a good interaction with a uh, attending, right? So say, for example, you really were, were impressive in during uh, rounds when you presented a patient and you had a good depth of knowledge about the patient, et cetera, et cetera, and the attending complimented you on that, you should write it down, write down that situation, write down that encounter with that attending. Why is that important is because in the attendings, you know, 
are all busy and we there's no way we can remember my exact uh, you know interaction with you uh so if you email me after you obviously ask me in person for a letter of recommendation you say you know thank you for everything you sent a follow-up email with your cv you can actually write in the email you know oh dr hamoud i had a pleasure you know working with you here's what i really enjoyed you know i really extrapolated or i got from working with you in this rotation i was able to present blah 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 blah, blah and i was able to do so and so and so and that puts a light bulb in my head is that all right i gotta mention this in his letter of recommendation that he would he stepped up to the plate he knew how to uh, address a complex issue that was going on with the patient he was able to ha uh, handle a difficult family situation uh, it could be numerous but if you don't provide that email to follow up with the attending they're just going to write a plain generic letter and i've seen this on already at least 30 applications i've reviewed for residencies that the you know oh you know shows up to work on time and he's a, he's going to be a great doctor i mean that doesn't really tell you anything it's not personal it doesn't it doesn't help me distinguish myself against my peers um allopathic and non-allopathic so you need to make sure that you create letters that are uh, unique and that can help make you look very good um I think that's really some of my spiel. And then I'll probably come up with some more stuff uh, once it comes up in my head. But what do you guys want to ask? <laughs> no, yeah, for sure. Thanks. Um, I mean, that that's that was a lot of helpful information. And like you already thought about like about 50 questions that I can ask. We're going to be here all night. Um, <laughs> but uh, but most important, what I what I wanted to ask first. Um, so in term four, we start doing beeline interactions and SGU starts teaching us how to interact with a active patient, how to conduct an HPBI, and now tomorrow I have a SOAP assessment. And from my personal experience, you know, I worked at a really busy emergency department at St. Joseph's in Patterson, New Jersey, for about yeah, four so years. Yeah, so my dad did his college. residency. Oh, he did? Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, at that time, it was, I think it was like a third busiest ER in the whole country. So it was, yeah. it was pretty intense. I was doing the seven P's to seven A's, like about four nights a week while being, a, like, you know, full full-time student like in college, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. But I remember when I was working there, since it was a teaching hospital, um, we'd get a lot of students that would come from different medical schools, New York Medical yeah. College, Toro, SGU. And the one thing that resonated with me before I even considered SGU was how on point SGU students were. Um, yeah. I remember, I, you know, I'm obviously really intimate with the attending and the resident. I sit right between them and I'm taking them. I was described. So I type up yeah. other medical charts and the medical student will come and say, hey, can I go see patient in room two? Resident will give them the green light. Patient, will, uh, The student will come back and present the case. And the first question the attending will usually ask is, what are your differentials? What's yeah. your plan? Why is that your plan? What are you looking for? So they, they kind of gunned them a little bit. And the one thing that I've noticed that SGU students were usually on point. I mean, they would come on, they would present the case in a very clean, linear They'll explain plan and why they're looking for X, Y, and Z, and why they want to do an X-ray. What are they trying to rule out? What are they trying to rule in? So with B-lines in term four and in term five, um, there's this culture that like we think is a little unrealistic. Like, hey, you got to type up your soap note in less than 10 minutes. You got to do the HBI. You got to do the physical exam, and you got to type everything up in 15 minutes. Yeah. And we're all kind of like, oh, this is, this is so pressuring. But then I'm coming to the realization, like, hey, no, nah, I, I think SGU is just trying to train us to just be these self-sufficient machines when we walk into clinical rotation. So that when we're in clinical rotations, we ask the attending, hey, can I go see that patient? We're forced to write a soap note in less than 10 minutes. We've been forced to do an HBI and a physical exam in 15 minutes. 
So what would you think? Do you think that's like a realistic expectation of us? Like, do you think that's what sets SGU students apart from other medical students that when we walk into clinical rotations and we're seeing patients for the first time, we're just Should we be taking even more serious of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question uh, and relation. And you're right. Uh, 10 minutes to write a note is actually in real clinical world, uh, it's not actually realistic. We have pre made templates that populate pretty much all the information. We, can, we fill out the HPI and we also fill out, you know, we edit the physical exam and then we write a quick assessment and plan. Um, to do that in 10 minutes is, is difficult. However, teaching you how to be efficient and it's teaching you how qualities to have as an intern, which is a first year resident, right? Regardless of what residency you're in, is that you're efficient and you're able to write notes quickly. Uh, if you can't write notes quickly, um, that is the biggest blunder that you'll have because you'll be staying late every day to write notes. You may miss important tasks that need to be done in terms of patient care or lectures, et cetera, because you're just so bogged down writing notes. So learning how to be efficient and writing notes fast is really what they're trying to aim. Does it need to be done in 10 minutes? Probably not. But in the real world, I'll tell you that a lot of the times we are able to forward yesterday's information of the note and we copy forward, I'm sure you know as a scribe, uh, we're able to take a lot of this, you know, existing uh, medical issues that the patient has that haven't changed. And, you know, you just kind of keep that forward and going on your note. But if anything new pops up, you can obviously update the note and put problems. But yeah, you're exactly right. It's designed to really push you guys. And I do think you should take it very seriously that, that your beelines why? Because having a broad differential is the most important asset or, or not skill set, I'm sorry, that you can have as a third year medical student. So I remember a resident that I was following in my third year of emergency medicine told me it perfectly. He said, as a third year medical student, I'm expecting you to have a broad differential. As a fourth year medical student, I'm expecting you to have a first line treatment understanding of a disease. Okay. And it's not like a super rare disease, like neuromyelitis optica, right? I mean, like that's super rare. It's more like your CO, classic COPD, community acquired pneumonia, asthma, stuff like that. Those are the type of diagnoses that he or she would expect you to know as a fourth year med student in terms of the first line medications, right? And maybe some adverse effects of those respective medications. So those are, that's really where, you know, knowing your differentials as a third year will then make it much easier in your life when you're a fourth year med student to really think about treatment because literally several months after that as a fourth year, you're becoming an intern and you need to know this stuff. It's, it's actually pretty amazing how much responsibility and autonomy you get as a first year resident, uh, depending on the institution, of course, but some like my institution, they just let us out in the wild. I mean, they, they, The sense of when we needed help, but at the end of the day, our senior residents, you know, uh, PGY two and threes, they would just let you run with it. You know, you see the patient, you write the note, you make the diagnosis, you round with the attending, you know, and we just watch and we make some good feedback and recommendations. Um, but that's it. And I think you, you bring up one more good point that I wanted to mention was that for you guys, when you're asked about, you know, especially with interviews, um, what's a good quality to have? And I think this is those who are successful in the SGU. I've, I've pretty much 
come to the conclusion that they, everybody has this quality is that you're teachable. You should always tell people that you're teachable uh, because that's that's it's a very humble way to say that I'm eager and inquisitive to learn about everything and I don't know everything. When you come off as knowing everything or you feel like you know the answer to everything, it, it really is it puts a bad taste in a resident or attendant's mouth about you. And that shouldn't be the case because I know you guys are trying to prove yourself, but be careful in how you prove yourself. Um, always, you know, it's OK to say, I don't know what's going on or I, I don't have an understanding as to why this is. Can you please teach me or let me uh, better understand what's going on instead of just saying, yeah, you know, I don't know. You know, it just shows that you don't have that inquisitive drive. And I know of people in IEA, that's really what really makes you guys stand out is that you guys are always inquisitive, which is why you really got yourself to this point is because you always want to make sure you try to find the right answer, which is really important. Yeah, uh, actually, before I go into my follow-up question, I noticed that you had a, a little bit of a you. heart. Oh, how about now? Is it a little bit better? Yeah, now I can hear you. There we go. Um, before I go yeah. into my follow-up, I, I noticed you had a, um, a little bit of a heart diagram behind you. Are you in cardiology? Is that what you're going into? Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've been doing since college uh, research in cardiology with my mentor. He's in North New Jersey as well. He's an interventional cardiologist doing stents and stuff like that in the coronary arteries. So, uh, I'm actually currently applying uh, right now to cardiology fellowships I'm interviewing. I, I'm at the end of my cardiology interview trail. It's much more condensed than residencies. Fellowship is, you know, around pretty much September till the end of October. It's only two months worth of interviews, but it's all by Zoom, which is much more economically feasible. So you get to interview at more places, which is very good news. Um, and yeah, so hopefully by the end of June of 2023, I'll start a cardiology fellowship. I'm most likely going to be staying at Lenox Hill because uh, it's really an amazing place to practice cardiology. And um, a lot of alumni who are graduated, who graduated as cardiology fellows are from SGU, which is really amazing. A lot of our chiefs uh, are from SGU. And really, that shows you how much this program likes uh, inter international uh, medical graduates. But we really take the top of the top from filtration in the sense that we take very high step scores because we really do want that work ethic, that professionalism, that 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 sense of wanting to know more and be humble about it. Um, and that goes to say that you know, in terms of where you know SGU students are taken in terms of residency, the Northeast, Florida. A little bit of the West Coast, you know, California, et cetera, love to take SU students. But if you're really going to put your money on where you want to, if you want to do, you know, internal medicine and have a high chance of getting a matching and then doing fellowship, we have, you know, Lenox Hill, the Mount Sinai, all the hospitals, Northwell, which is Lenox Hill, Staten Island, North Shore. I mean, all these hospital systems. There's SGU students in all of them, uh, pretty much. Besides, I mean, you know, the Columbia and New York and New York Med, uh, NYU's, um, I, those are basically a couple of hospitals, but there's so many that take SGU graduates, which is great news. That's admirable. Uh, just because, likewise, I want to do something with the heart and cardiology. So it's nice uh, being able to interact with you. But uh, yeah, the point sure. I wanted to bring up as well is that uh, you touched on a great point, and Kevin. It as well, uh, the evolution of a medical student from being in your fifth term about to leave the island to actually stepping into clinical and then developing skills to talk to patients, being able to write soap notes, being able to be teachable in a clinical setting and not just in a classroom. 
would you be able yeah. to touch on your evolution as a medical student and how you went from your time on the island to where you are now? Yeah, I think that, you know, leaving the island, you know, you have basically a desire to kind of, you know, your systematic approach in the sense of your study habits, et cetera, they kind of all get thrown out the window, unfortunately, because of clinical rotation. So, you know, your your ability to actually spend that amount of time, I mean, you guys right now, you you probably won't realize until you leave the island is that the amount of time you're actually studying is unprecedented, it's unreal. When you're in clinical rotations, you don't have that time uh, to purely study. So really you have to take advantage actually of every patient encounter you get to read up on the patient when you go home at night, or if you can somehow find a way to do that. So the way I evolved into a third year med student is that, you know, if I got a patient, if the resident assigned me a patient, an interesting patient, quote unquote, to follow up on, I would first study from top to bottom in terms of what were the patient's epidemiology, you know, the patient was African-American with a higher risk of sarcoid. And what were their patient's risk factors for ischemic heart disease? Then I would uh, kind of understand what we were doing at that moment in terms of treating the patient. Um, It it really was important to know that. Uh, Other times, if I had no clue what was to go, picture fit into this Uh oh did we lose them are you guys good is it's it just some connectivity issues over here uh, okay no problem yeah so the other thing was that in the third year is that you know most patients don't fit the actual step one step two step three uh clinical picture so you won't get a you know a patient you know, for example, lupus has that classic malar rash. There's actually variants of lupus that don't even have a rash at all. There's variants of lupus that have just a rash and no systemic issues, no organ damage. So I realized that in my third year and then fourth year as well, that uh, patients don't fit that picture, but I need to have the most presentation. Masters of year, and that it lacks in kind of just easy rotations. That's the biggest mistake that I've seen so many uh, med students, not just SGU, make. You know, when I was in my fourth year, even during applying towards residency, I did ICU elective blocks. You know, in terms of just because I didn't feel comfortable handling handling patients who were on ventilators and all these complex issues. Um, and it helped me because when I started my intern year, I was right in the MICU. That was my first rotation. And I felt comfortable actually understanding what medications they were getting and what were the vent settings and all that stuff. So don't take your fourth year lightly. And I think that was my evolution, basically, from my third year to fourth year. My fourth year, I made sure to get all the specialty electives done, endocrine, ICU, et cetera, to help polish my understanding so that I'm prepared as an intern to really see what I, you know, to, to address anything that comes my way in terms of challenges. Okay, uh, so 
you mentioned before the epidemiology. I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I think this would be good advice for any term two students who are coming into MS2 or even like term fives going into clinicals. Um, so in term four, term four is notorious, as you know, for being that one term that everybody tends to talk about being like one of the tougher terms. And the first thing I noticed when I started the first block was that, yeah, you know, term four is a bit tough, but it's fun because there, yeah. SGU now is requiring us to level up our sense of knowledge in terms of thinking more clinical. And um, I didn't really get to appreciate that until our very first MCQ session with Dr. Polius, it was a pharmacology one. And the way that he wrote the questions in the MCQ, I was like, wow, I, I really thought that I knew what I was doing, but it's it's not, it, I gotta work a little harder. Um, but the one thing that I picked up on in term four, it, it, like when they say, okay, you, you gotta start training yourself to think more clinical. Okay, but what does that actually mean? I mean, that's a loaded question. What do you mean by clinical? And now I'm at the point where when I learned the pathology or I learned the pharmacology of stuff or the microbiology of stuff, what's the ideology? Yeah. What's the patient population that this is common in? Um, what's the yeah. age group that's common in? What are the risk factors that it's common in? And I never really got to appreciate that until I started seeing it more in questions and how much that's helped me answer questions. Yeah. Like, yeah, these two diseases are likely, but look at the age. Yeah. Or look at the gender, look at where they live. You know, that I never really got to see like how much that actually like, So, so that's the one thing that I took away in term four, how like they really do when they say it's more clinical, I think they mean you can't ignore the ideology, you can't ignore the epidemiology. It's not like MS1 where it's buzzwordy. Now in term four, term five, you really got to start paying attention to the bigger picture. And I guess that just helps more with moving into like your clinicals because then, you know, you can present a case and be more like, well, oh, this is a 40-year-old female, this disease is likely or whatever. Um, so my question is, now that step one is pass fail, there's been rumors going around that it's no longer buzzwordy. And I mean, I'm the type of student that I, I tr always try to not really rely on buzzwords. I always try to look at the vignettes as like a whole picture, like what could it possibly be? And then use whatever they're giving me to like key into what the, the answer might be. But yeah. um, with these new rumors, of course, everybody's a little bit of on edge because it's pass fail. Of course, you know, there's some students saying that it's no longer buzzwordy and um, it might be a little tougher now because it is pass fail. It might make it a little bit more challenging to actually get that pass. Um, but what would you say to the one student who is, for example, like me, I'm in term four. I'm not doing hardcore step studying. I am doing board questions to familiarize myself with the questions. Term five is getting ready for, for step. I mean, SGU just added a new exam for term five to kind of prepare them better for step. But yeah. for step one, you know, what would you say to that term four student who's just kind of like, teasing the idea of studying and what would you say to the term five student who's about to walk in and to that dedicated period of studying for step one? Yeah, I mean, those are great questions. I mean, just to backtrack, you know, I, I literally have just tutored multiple students have taken step one. I can easily tell you that's not a rumor that's correct. Uh, the USMLE has always been designed where they provide information about the patient and it's not irrelevant. Uh, it's not going to throw you off. So uh, the age, the patient's uh, race, if it's included, is being purposely put into the vignette to actually help guide you in, in your differential or understanding. Also, the biggest mistake a lot of students do when they read a vignette is they just don't read the question first. I mean, that's the first thing I do as a tutor when I'm tutoring my students is you have to read the question first because it primes your brain into, is this a pharmacological question? Is this a pathophysical factor question? What do I need to pick up from the vignette now that I know the question? And then when they don't read the question first, 
they read the vignette and they're like, oh, wait a sec, what did I miss that I had to, or what did I didn't pick up? So read the question first. But yeah, that's that's completely a false rumor. I think unfortunately, there's also the, the real rumor that's unfortunate is that step two CK will also become pass fail. That's actually the next thing that's probably going to happen, which unfortunately is going to make things even more difficult. I've spoken to multiple residency directors, including my own in our hospital. And, uh, you know, regarding term four, term five, but what, what's going to happen for the SGU student if the step two CK is also pass fail. And he told me that, or my multiple program directors have told me that they'll actually look at your clinical rotations, your exams, your shelf exams in your clinical rotations and your letters of recommendation. But that's why it really hits home based on what I was saying in the beginning to really take those clinical rotations very seriously. Regarding term four people, I don't think I would recommend you really again to dedicate step studying or even tease the idea of uh, step studying at that point. What you should really dedicate yourself to is again what I was saying before, reading the question, being able to identify key epidemiological clinical risk factors in, this, in the vignette, being able to highlight them first pass. If you're able to do that and answer the question, right, you're, you've already uh, accomplished a huge feat that a lot of students uh, don't do correctly in the way they study for and prepare for step one. So if you get that mindset in term four, like I know how to extrapolate, I know how to identify the important information, even the vitals. A lot of people, you know, you need to know what normal vitals or abnormal vitals are. A lot of people will just brush over them. And that's the, cl that's the clinical component that you're talking about that a lot of people are not appreciative of yet is the vitals as well. So in labs, once you're able to do that, that you've taken care of a huge burden in the sense of relieving that off your chest for term five. Then when term five comes, like I was saying before, you really need to get in the get a, a kind of a systematic or a scheme going where you can review all the past year and a half material. You know, I know for IEA, I remember Dr. Clunes was telling me that our cohort of people, we're, we're, we're able to, we have that cognitive capability to, uh, absorb or kind of reteach ourselves all the past year and a half of information uh, during term five. So that's going to be one of your objectives. And then the other objective is really getting through UWorld and having that approach that we were just saying in terms of identifying the risk factors, highlighting, reading the question first. If you're able to do it that way, I mean, you're going to easily pass step one. It's not, it's not a question about that. Um, I, most IEA members statistically, um, you know, knock on wood, they pass uh, step one easily. Um, it used to be more uh, stressful for us because we had to get a numerical score, and that's what scared us. Because that again to a competitive residency. Uh, now, like we said, the buck is stopping at two CK and also your clinical rotations. Um, thank you, Doctor. Actually, I also had a follow-up question. Um, I was just wondering, considering that you're looking at applications right now, what are yeah. some extracurriculars that stand out um, in residency applications that we should consider any research opportunities or anything along those lines? Yeah, that's a great, great, great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, so it depends on the residency you're going to apply to. Uh, for internal medicine, you know, I used to think when I was applying to medicine, I needed all this research. I was trying to get in papers and do all stuff. That's actually not really that important to, to actually get publications. What's more important in terms of extracurricular activities that you're involved in projects. If you put into the application or your application, excuse me, electronically that you're not, you're participating in research, you're in a some sort of 
project that's ongoing. That's more important. I mean, kudos to you if you can get a publication out. I was lucky enough to get publications out before I applied for residency. But it, in hindsight, I didn't really need to do that. I think that was way too much effort. Not that I'm saying you don't have to do that. You, please feel free if you have that opportunity. As far as other extracurriculars besides research, you know, the gold humanism, I think, is really amazing. That's a great thing to have and to be a part of. And also just doing sort of community outreach wherever you are. I mean, every res I'm sorry, every clinical rotation hospital you're going to do, I mean, you know, whether it's in Northeast, if it's Florida, West Coast, wherever, there's going to be community philanthropic projects available for you to participate in. And I think, you know, whatever you're going to go into, whether it's medicine, surgery, et cetera, you're going to be able to help people of lower, you know, socioeconomic status, those who have less uh, opportunities or less distributable access to medicine. I mean, you know, the opportunities will always be there. So you should really, in your third year, be able to participate in some sort of community outreach. I mean, it could be anything, you know, whatever you want to do. And the other thing, too, is, you know, surprisingly, in applications we look at, there's a section in applying to residency that tells us your hobbies. And, you know, you'd be surprised uh, at the stuff that people put in the applications, like very boring, generic stuff that, you know, they make themselves like sound like they're like, uh, you know, some sort of gymnast, like, like they can do acrobatic stuff. When mind you, like they never set foot in a gym at all. Like, you know, it. like once you interview them, you know, it's like just be interested in basic stuff. Like I put in my applications that I love brewing different types of coffee. And I remember when I interviewed at U uh, University of Connecticut, the first thing the interviewer asked me, he goes, dude. What do you like? Cold brew, my, uh, micro drip? Uh, how do you like your coffee? French press? It's just very relatable stuff that all adults like to do, right? So think about that kind of stuff when you're applying to residency. The hobby biggest thing is can, that can help you distinguish yourself. Like, oh yeah, I remember Sam, he was all about, you know, cooking food from all different parts of the world. He's super inquisitive and he'd be a great fit here because we have such a diverse patient population. So like every single thing you put in your application, you can relate it back to how you're going to be a good fit for their program. So a little bit more on that line, and I guess this is more on a, a lighthearted note. Uh, what do you do in your free time besides brewing coffee? Do you <laughs> do you do anything in New York? Are you a sports fan? Then tell us a little bit more about yourself outside of medicine. Yeah, man. I mean, I I you know I've been raised in North New Jersey my whole life. I live in Jersey City, but I go into New York City all the time because all my friends and residents here are there. I was just that actually. Uh, one of the perks of being a chief in our program is, you know, we have access to Madison Square Garden suite. We Northwell actually owns a suite. Uh, we have a dedicated throughout the year for any, you know, Rangers, Knicks games, et cetera. So I was just at a Knicks game last night versus Orlando Magic. It's pretty cool. So, yeah, we go to bars. You know, we have a good time. Everybody is awesome in our program. Um, I'm always hanging out with my friends, too, from when I'm growing up in North Jersey as well. I love to cook. Uh, food from all over the world. Uh, you know, I've been really recently getting into that now that I've had some a little bit of spare time before fellowship starts. Um, but yeah, coffee is really a big interest to me. There's a really cool coffee shop, Spice Isle Coffee. Uh, have you guys tried their coffee down there? Yeah, good. Yeah. So the lady that owns it and her husband, they're Polish, they're from Long Island. So they're actually their coffee, their main place that they operate is a warehouse right off Maurice Bishop Highway. And uh, yeah, they're from Long Island. I got to know them. I used to drive my scooter there all the time and pick up. Um, they made the best cold brew coffee I've ever had in my life. 
Well, yeah, if I, <laughs> that's actually pretty funny you say that because I remember uh, yeah, right before yeah, I came to the island, my cousin, he bought me an espresso machine. Love it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, I didn't realize like the science that was behind it. I mean, I've always been obsessed with coffee and trying. Like, I also grew up in Northern Jersey. I grew up, I was born in Jersey City Hospital, but my mom nice. raised me in North Bergen. Yeah, she raised me in North Bergen and then we moved to Bogota, which is in Bergen County. Um, right before i started high school and uh you know being in northern jersey there's just coffee shops booming everywhere it's like yeah it's like the one thing you do now on the weekends for fun you know you like you go with your friends like i was go get brunch at this one spot or they have really good coffee they put it over a brew or they, they do nitro whatever um so my cousin got me an espresso machine and i remember going to target at like 10 o'clock at night buying two bags of espresso beans i'm like i'm gonna figure out how to make an espresso shot behind the machine itself was so oh, sophisticated yeah. that I ended up going two bags <laughs> of espresso and trying each espresso shot. I was up to one o'clock in the morning and then when I finally figured out the correct dials, I couldn't sleep. I went through two bags. <laughs> You're wired. But, yeah, I was wired. I was super, I was wired for like 48 hours. I went on a coffee bender, but I you mentioned that, um, you know, like we're, we're social media is kind of paradoxical in a way because we see all these statistics about extracurriculars and the research like i think the other day because i control ia's uh, social media account is I, I will watch like you know people make a post of like if you're interested in internal medicine look at the stats average applicants are publishing 20 papers in four years they're doing 40 presentations 60 symposiums they're doing x y and z and i'm more <laughs> like dude i just want to get good grades <laughs> I want to meet good people. I want to still be able to explore the things that I'm interested in. Like I, myself, I love coffee. I have a background in culinary. I love to cook. You know, I, I like to sit around my friends and have those authentic, memorable moments. And I don't want to lose any of that. And I'm afraid that like seeing these statistics that are out there about 20 publications, which to me just sounds absurd, but I'm sure it's doable. Like I've, I'm afraid that like if I let myself get overwhelmed with the statistics of all the extracurriculars that you need in your application, that you might lose a little bit of yourself. You might lose that authenticity in yourself. You might lose those hobbies that you're interested in. And then you might, you know, I mean, obviously you have experience interviewing a lot of students. Like, do you think that having all those extracurriculars really are that important? Or do you think like, you know, finding that one extracurricular, even if it's not research, that still lets you keep that authenticity of yourself, that when you're sitting in an interview, and someone like yourself or an attending goes, do you like coffee? No, I forgot to drink coffee in four years because I was too busy publishing 20 papers. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, I think that you bring up a really good point. One, the, the statistics, you know, for medicine, you know, IMGs, it's still very favorable. Luckily, why is that? Because there's so many programs available. And, you know, the, the National Registry for the match, uh, the NRMP, um, has a statistical kind of publication they come out with every year after the match that shows if you're an IMG, if you have the step score, if, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, this is your chance of matching. Uh, it even tells you after how many interviews, how many, you know, what's your chance of matching. And you can actually see that, you know, if you look at medicine, it's pretty funny that the amount of publications you need is not 20. It's maybe one or two max. I mean, not even. That's what I was saying. Like, it's actually more important as, as an interviewer that I know that you're actually part of a project, right? And if you're able to have a great personality, be very amicable and, and funny to talk to and, and nice and a human being. I'm going to take that person any day of the week, okay, over that guy or girl who's got a thousand publications. Also, 
quality and quantity are very important to know about, right? So quantity, there's been millions of times I've seen this and it's just amazing that they, you know, they boast that, oh, I've had 40 publications. And then you actually go and look at these publications, which we do, we actually read them and they're just fluff. It's just not real substantial research. And there's millions of online journals that are unfortunately sketchy and just want money that will accept your paper. And it, it doesn't mean that you're actually contributing back to medicine, right? You're not contributing back to society that way. Versus that one project where you looked at ways to address, you know, socioeconomic disparities in women in medicine and, and women in terms of medical care, I'm sorry. Um, that's an amazing project. And even if you didn't publish anything yet, my God, that's something that I, I want that person to be a part of my program. The other thing you mentioned that's really good, I'm glad you said this, was social media. You know, coming from being a banker and, and, and as a resident, as a chief resident, you know, with my interns and my residents, the first thing I teach them, or first thing I taught them, sorry, in orientation last summer, was that your social media account is a direct reflection of you and is also another before the interview, okay? So not that I'm saying that you don't have freedom of speech, but unfortunately in this day and age, uh, especially with attendings, whether they're older, more conservative, what, you know, depends on where they're coming from. But they may view you, unfortunately, as having some sort of different mindset, different political view, different view of topics in your social media that may be detrimental to you. When so I want you guys to always think about if I were to publish this on social media, how would the whole world interpret what I'm saying? How would the whole world interpret what I'm trying to convey? And I know that I'm not, I'm not trying to say don't be mindful or don't advocate, but unfortunately in this day and age, you have to be careful. So my social media during you know, my third year residency, I did not post anything to jeopardize my uh, my residency. And I say that why? Because we had an applicant that was very, very, um, his voice was very strong in the sense of, unfortunately, the, the con has their own view as to what's going on. But the problem was he was so vocal about it that people from uh, attendings from certain uh, religious backgrounds took offense by it. And they knew about this kid because, unfortunately, in his Twitter and his social media, it was very prominent. So really, just don't risk your residency, don't risk your career, you know, based on what you want the world to hear about your political views. Instead, just 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 talk about it to your friends, your family. Just don't bring it up in social media because it's really, really going to be detrimental to your, your career. And just uh, once you match into residency, you know, then you can resume kind of being an advocate and all that stuff. But during that time frame, just please, you know, just be cognizant of, of that. But yeah, you don't need to have all those uh, publications. Um, I don't think that's necessary. As a follow-up kind of to what you just said, two things. Um, one being the social media. How does it affect you if you don't have any social media at all? How, yeah, that's a good how, do, how do they see that? Yeah, I don't for example, think that's me. I'm not, I'm not active on, I don't have any, I don't, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not. For personal reasons, though, I've never really been on social media. I mean, I, I was at one point, but then I just kind of logged off everything. But um, yeah, that's that's a yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I don't. I, what I, if you're I, on the opposite of it? 
I think it's equivocal. I don't think it hurts you. I don't think it benefits you. I think the one thing that you could do to actually benefit you, and I did this during my application season, was I was showing to anybody uh, who looked at my Instagram how much fun I was having in clinical rotations. I was showing to them how I was learning from residents and how I was hanging out with the residents, say, you know, going out doing or going to the big kind of, you know, blood screening drive in the set, I mean, uh, sorry, blood pressure screening clinic or whatever. It, it, you can actually use that as a, as a way to enhance your application. You can actually use that to make you look better. But the problem is a lot of people take social media and use it in the wrong way. So to answer your question, it doesn't hurt you if you don't have it. It hurts you if you use it the wrong way. And it can actually help you if you use it the right way. Yeah, that, made, that yeah, makes a lot of sense. That's that's, that's good. Because uh, I know that something that's like kind of sketch, you know, of course, social media, that's also something that you yeah. should, which is general advice. It's not just specific for medical school, but just in general, you know, obviously don't share things that, and I think it says a lot also um, for anybody who is still on the fence about it. I think it just says a lot about your consideration for other people. You know, yeah. um, like things that you post on your social media story or your post itself. Like, yeah, it's good. To, it's good for you. It's nice for you. It feels good for the people around you. But, but what about the people you don't know? You know, it, it really might hurt them. Like, for example, um, this is not this might not be a good a good. Have MCQ sessions and in the sessions, they put the statistics of how many students got the question correct. Yeah. And then, you know, there was one question MCQ. Um, 3% of the class got the answer correct. And someone took a screenshot of that, posted it on their social media story and was like, I'm part of that 3%. Like, okay, great. Congratulations. Pat yeah. yourself on the back. But what if there's, what if there's someone in that room who you hurt, you know, right. what if that person wasn't in that 3% and what if they're that student who's waking up at 6 a.m. going to bed at 2 a.m. grinding every minute and they're not doing well. And then they didn't get into that 3%, you know, it just right. hurts them. So in a, in a nutshell, I always thought social media and I always said this to my friends is like, you're posting something that makes you feel good, sure. But like at the same time, take consideration of other people around you. You don't know who's watching. You don't know who's listening. You don't know who's following you. You don't know who you might be affecting. And I think that in itself should answer anybody's question about social media and whatever career they decide to go into. Yeah, I mean, you talk about treating others with respect. It's really important. I mean, you know, you'd be surprised in the hospital system. I mean, you know, the... You have to treat everyone with such a high level of respect. Why is that? I, why do I say that? I'll give you a great example. There was a um, an environmental worker who we they used to call Janner. We call them environmental workers now in the hospital. And this guy was at Hackensack. Nicest guy. Always said hi to him every day. Didn't know his background. Didn't didn't I didn't have time unfortunately to get to know him. But he event one day we just had a longer than normal conversation of high and by, and it turned out to be, he was Grenadian. And this guy actually knew the department uh, chairman of medicine at Hackensack. Now I thought about it in hindsight and retrospect, like if I was like, kind of just blew this guy off and didn't want to talk to him, what would he have thought of me? Right. Oh, this SGU student guy thinks he's so hot or whatever. He thinks he, he thinks he's the coolest person on the planet. Let me go tell that chairman who this guy is. And I don't think he should be here at this hospital. And there goes your residency program, right? So think about all those little things in terms of treating people nicely, treating people with respect. The other thing you bring up a good point is, you know, even texting, right? Like 
For example, if you're in a group chat with residents or other attendings or whatever, don't ever talk to them in the ways that are like, yeah, okay, I understand or whatever, whatever. Just say, I got it. No problem. I'm on it. Whatever. You know, just always show that you want to be the first to help. You don't want to make it seem like you're what they call a gunner, meaning the person like is over kind of just trying to do everything and trying to show up, but you want to be a team player, right? You want to be like the, the, the person that is reliable and also emailing when you guys are, you know, I know you guys are emailing using SGU accounts and when you email, you know, whether it's a clerkship director, whether it's a coordinator at a hospital, you have to be the most that you send Again, can the whole hospital system read that email and say, this is a very good professional email. This is a nice human being. Or is it rude? Is it, is it just unprofessional? Then that, that's just going to hurt your chances, again, of getting a good job. It's all about those little things that add up, and it'll, it'll reward you in the end. Um, thank you for that. I actually, I actually had another follow-up of what you had mentioned earlier. I know you had mentioned, um, you know, in terms of fellowship and quality of work. And one thing you specifically mentioned was, let's say, um, doing a research project on working with women and, and how it affects like healthcare with women. And that's actually something I really enjoy working with. Um, so in terms of going into internal medicine and then following up with a fellowship, how would you go about finding the right fellowship for whatever you're passionate in through internal medicine? Like you found yeah, cardiology, I mean, how would you do that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think medicine, what's what's so amazing about medicine and also your rotations clinically during your third and fourth year, you're going to see, you know, when you're in gynecology, when you're in OB, you're going to see so many different, you know, uh, tastes of medicine that you can decide. But once you go into internal medicine, it, you, it gets a little more refined. You're, you know, you're limited to, not limited, but you still have a great amount of choices, cardiology, renal, endocrine chronology, gastroenterology, rheumatology, to name a few. Um, it's really, it, it's, you're, it's, it's just like, it's fate. You're really, you're going to strike upon a patient. It's really amazing. You, you'll, you'll encounter a patient who has a, you know, whether it's a rheumatological disease or some disease, right. And you study and you say, wow, I really enjoyed describing this, or I really enjoyed researching or understanding this about this patient. Maybe I should pursue this. Really, you know, your first year of medicine as an intern, you really want to be a good, have a good foundation of medicine. I mean, I, I cannot emphasize that enough that you can be the smartest cardiologist in the room and not know how to treat pneumonia and you will not be respected at all. Seriously. These will come up at, in your residencies, you know, maybe let's just say three quarters away or at the end of your first year by talking to the fellows, the people who are training in that respective uh, field that you want to go into and just getting to know them, be that cool person. Don't be overbearing on, on top of them to get into research projects, but just be inquisitive. Just be like, Hey, I really want to understand more about, you know, rheumatology, or I would love to join projects or talking to an attending about it. Once you present the patient, well, once you show them that you're capable of doing good medicine, then the projects will uh, come forth and it, you'll be amazed. But the biggest mistake that a lot of uh, interns make is that they're not good at medicine. And then they ask for projects and the fellows are like, you don't even know how to treat diabetes or the residents have complained about you that you're not on time and you're doing like, you know, you're not good at medicine. How am I going to trust you with a research project, right? How am I going to trust you to do something that I'm investing my time into as well? So just think about that too. You have to have a good foundation. The reason why I say that is because when I went applying into internal medicine, I was gun ho cardiology, right? I was like, I'm going to be a cardiologist, blah, 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 blah. And my, the interviewer who's now, she's an associate program director, this old school Iranian lady, I love her. 
she's an HIV doctor. She's like, listen, I don't care about any of your research. She said this to me. He goes, you need to be a good internal medicine doctor first. And then you should be, you, she's like, you'd be amazed how, how so many cardiologists can diagnose and treat the most basic medicine diagnoses, which is true. So have a good foundation. You'll be very well respected. That'll lead to, uh, you know, getting research projects and whatever you want to pursue in terms of your specialty easily. It's always about having a good foundation. Thank you so much. That's great, Dr. Mood. You, you, we can sit here all night talking. talking. We just need a cup of coffee, but I don't want to waste too much of your time. I feel like we've had you've given us a lot of good insight and stuff. And um, you know, you mentioned a lot of the highs in your career, and uh, I have to say, it's, it's, it's truly inspiring to see someone such as yourself go through an SGU, be a part of IEA, which I want to talk about too in a second. Um, but I have one more quick question, and then we can wrap it up. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, sure. So in terms of, I'm still a little open-minded. What drew me to medicine to begin with was emergency medicine, but I'm starting to kind of be interested in internal medicine. I'm not going to lie. Um, but what would you say, like, okay, so we're, we're all human at the end of the day, you know, that we're going to have some lows. There's going to be some days where I don't want to study. Your equivalence would be there's going to be the days where you get that one patient that was a complicated case. It didn't turn out the way you wanted it to turn out, or it did, but they probably got transferred to palliative care, or I don't know. Um, sure. What are what are some you know what are some things that students like myself who are interested in internal medicine um, should expect when it comes to seeing those lows and and how to manage those lows at least when it comes to the emotional toll, maybe the financial toll the physical toll, you know, what are some things that, uh, you know, so some things that students like us would want to hear. Yeah. I think, you know, the take home point or the, the takeaways from, from what you're asking in the sense of, you know, how to deal with adversity and those lows. I think when I was down in SGU, I remember my first semester, the first term, uh, I was very overwhelmed. I was actually contemplating quitting, uh, cause I just couldn't handle it. And I remember my, my sisters, actually, I have older sisters, they're in their mid to late 30s, they told me, you know, listen, you're going to look back on this in hindsight, and you're going to say, wow, this is the most challenging point in my life, but it's going to actually be the most important one and most beneficial. And why do I say that now? During the pandemic, right, I was in New York City, and we were at the epicenter, the world was basically like coming to an end. We were the frontline heroes. We were the people who were saving lives. And you don't realize it until you're actually literally hands-on with these people that their fate is in your hands and you can actually do something to help them, right? And, you know, it's not always, like you said, a win-win situation. There are times when patients, unfortunately, don't make it, but you were there for the family. You were there to talk to them. I remember when there's this one lady in Portugal, she was in her mid-40s. She had mixed connective tissue disease. So she basically had uh, a mix of scleroderma and, and I believe uh, lupus. And she has severe interstitial lung disease and pulmonary hypertension. Unfortunately, she developed COVID in the hospital and she died. But I, we, we kept her alive. And I remember when she was about to die, we were able to get her kids there. And she unfortunately passed, but luckily her kids were there. And I was able to talk to her kids and tell them that their mother's life wasn't lost in vain and that they need to do everything in their power to really always make, make their mother proud because their mom's always watching them. And I realized like, wow, that is like the most powerful thing. Cause that kid, you know, in the 
remember me. He's always going to remember that situation, that discussion I had with him. And I think I think about those situations and I say to myself, it was all work go the adversities, the, the lows, it, it really was all worth it. And I think for you guys and how impactful you're going to be in the world to, to do that, you're going to have that opportunity, which you guys are around other people who want to do that, but we are such a small cohort. If you think about it across the world, we are a very tiny cohort of people that want to do this because we're, we're considered crazy really. Now, just to loop it back into another is back as a physician. So we're actually now using IEA. You know, Dr. Rao has been helping me. Dr. Clunes has been helping me. I'm working with my, my mentor who's an interventionist. We are actually working to bring Grenada's first full cath catheterization lab to do stents in Grenada's General Hospital. And we have that capability because we maintain the networking, we maintain the good relationships, we have the power as physicians. So we're going to get a team of people that come every six weeks to go there and help patients get stents to revascularize their coronary arteries to save their lives. I mean, that is such an impactful thing to have. And that's all motivation for you guys to always remember that this is going to be you soon. And that's what's exciting. That's what really is the amazing opportunity that you guys have literally in front of you. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's, that's insane. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Um, and I, you know, I really appreciate you uh, bringing up IA again. And, you know, that's, I think that's what Quinn and I, we, we agreed on that. Like we, we had our, we had an IA alumni come in last week as a guest speaker of ours. And, you know, when you and I connected, I, I said, wow, look, like, what IA is doing is we're bringing a lot of like-minded, like-minded individuals into the same room, sharing our ideas, sharing our dreams. And even though they might seem far-fetched, it's not impossible. And um, when we meet IA alumni like yourself, SGU alumni like yourself, and you tell us these, these initiatives, it's, it's almost as if like that IA drive of becoming the best that you can be and being around people who are going to support you and lift you up and give back to the community, it never goes away. Um, Dr. Yeah. Stella Yoon, who was with us last week, she was saying how her only extracurricular that she had was IA, and she can, she owed a lot of her leadership building and how she interacts with her patients as a contribution from IA. And now, granted, if you're not in IA, that's fine. We're making initiatives to help that leadership building, that character building, and Quinn has been doing an amazing job with that this term and setting the example of how, like, you know, IA is something that. And that we should really start taking into consideration in terms of like giving people the opportunity to build a doctor such as yourself with that success is just setting the example of how you first learn on the island how to be a leader. You move on to the real world, you learn medicine, and then look, you come right back to the island, just giving us the opportunity. And it's just keeping that cycle going, going, and going. And then just watching all of it come into fruition is really beautiful. It's amazing networking that IEA provides. Dr. Clunes is still is phenomenal and still an important presence in my life. And I was able to just simply email her and 
we've got in touch with Dr. Rao, and now we have everyone in, involved in terms of Grenada and you know the Ministry of Health and SGU. And that's something I'll definitely be in touch with you guys in the coming months. We're, we're trying to get funding to get the equipment to build this cath lab, but it's going to be unprecedented. And it is something that is a testament to IEA that I think if I wasn't part of IEA, I probably wouldn't have realized how important it is to give back and, and to, to have an impact in Grenada. And I think that's a that's a me my message to you guys is to continue to give back to that area to continue. I mean, there's a guy I don't know if he works at the barbershop anymore. His name was um, Gerard Alexander. His nickname was Bubbles. He told me when he was cutting my hair. Yeah, he's still there. Good. So he cut. He was cutting my hair at the end of second year, at term five, and he goes, Sam, you got to promise me one thing, man. I'm like, what's up? He's like, you got to come back and give give back to this place, please. And I'll never forget that guy saying that to me. And I told him, I do not, I always fulfill my promises. And I will let him know that this is what we're doing to give back to our community in Grenada. Well, Dr. that honestly, once again, you read my mind. I was going to ask you what your closing remarks are, but I couldn't have said a better closing remark myself um, coming from Bubble Story. That's yours. Uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this this thing up and i think the last thing we're going to say is that iea is always here for you i love how this conversation came right back to the support that iea gives the community and that's exactly what we did with this first little podcast episode is bring a current student put them in the face an alumni who is doing fantastic work in their field and show them that road that is possible and that iea is here to guide them along the way so we thank you so much um, the one thing we're going to ask of you is uh, i'm sure students are going to want to be connected uh, how can students get connected to you in any way if you want to uh, reach out about any any question or, or or any resource that you might have yeah i mean you know i'll send you my uh, su email it's still active as an alumni member uh, i'll send it to you guys right now by email um and they can reach out to me that way i'd be more than happy to provide information and you know in the future in the next term or whatever if you need me to do another talk or talk to the uh students then or whoever be more than happy to do that. Um, it's really a pleasure. And I thank you guys. You guys are doing a good job. Keep it up. Uh, you know, it's a long road, but it's really worth it, honestly. It, it's an amazing experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, thanks, thanks for coming on again. Um, you're our first official guest. And I think it's going to be, uh, I think we got something beautiful going on here. And I think yeah. once we start advertising you and uh, we, we broadcasted it to the SU community that we had you on and they hear our conversation to hear your story and your inspiration. I think um, that we got something good going on here and I, we would love to have you back for another another round, another table talk with some coffee next time, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, I'll, know, bring, I'll make my own espresso for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then um, we can even open the floors to students who uh, may have like specific questions and then we can talk about that. But of course, that's in the future, you're really busy. You're a chief at Lennox Hill, super motivating. You've motivated me even more to just keep working hard. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. No problem, guys. All the best. Let me know. Always be here. Always contact me. All right. <laughs>